Hello world and welcome to another episode of LJ Presents. I'd like to wish everybody a happy 4th of July. As you can hear, there are fireworks in the background. This week, I have two very important guests. Miss Ashley Woodard Henderson and the Reverend Alan Maxfield Steele. They represent the Highlander Research Center in New Market, Tennessee. And just to be honest with you, when I found out about this center, I had no idea that the very reason we were able to have the civil rights uh, bill passed into law was because of Dr. King and Rosa Parks being the spearheads of this, but they got the idea of doing this wonderful work at the Highlander Research Center. And it just blew my mind, right? So that's pretty much the reason why I had to get these two wonderful people on and talk to them a bit about what's going on in the world today. Talk to me about the Highlander Research Center and its great work that it's been doing uh, from the 19 early 1900s till today. Uh, they recently had a uh, tragic uh, fire uh, from arson. It's a hate crime. The investigation is ongoing. I'm sure e even now uh, this particular episode was recorded uh, about a month or so ago, uh, a little more than a month. And that's pretty much what's still going on now. But uh, I can't wait for you to hear these uh, two people talk. So without further ado, I present to you Miss Ashley Woodard Henderson and Alan Maxfield Steele. You know, funny thing that, uh, you know, but, you know, before we, you know, book the date and all that, I was uh, in Whole Foods uh one day and the song uh tennessee arrested development came <laughs> on. <laughs> and and it you know it, it reminded me of you but the most beautiful thing happened okay um prologue I, i'm not too keen on musicals i mean you can drag me into one like the most important ones you know like the whiz jesus christ Superstar, right. all that stuff i can get into but you know just the roger and hammerstein stuff i just i just want to punch somebody <laughs> in the throat but <laughs> yeah but uh but but the 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 most beautiful thing happened as the song was playing in the middle of a grocery store. I'm seeing like every person of color just like bobbing their head and dancing, you know, like it's literally like dancing, like not like you know full blown like dancing in the aisles, but just like yeah, this brings me back. It's like a reset, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, it was just it was crazy. As I was checking out, the woman at the counter was like bobbing her head, and she was singing. I was humming too, and I was like, "All right, have a good day." <laughs> and no, I went on this Arrested Development binge. How I feel about the song and the state, for the most part, <laughs> it's just true. Every time I'm I'm here at Highlander, it does feel like I'm being taken to another place. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I do think it's a very sacred space. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not shocked when I hear that song playing in other places and people are getting their whole entire lives. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Has there been any update on the fire fires that happen up there? You know, the investigations are ongoing, so okay. we don't have causation or anything like that. What we do know is that on March 29th, that our main office building burned to the ground um mm. like even below the ground it's like in the foundation um, oh wow and um that the day before everything had been fine 
um, that that morning when when we got there and, and saw what had happened, that there was uh, a symbol that has we've all come to know is uh, 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 is connected to the white power movement was found in the mm-hmm. lot and it hadn't been there the day before. Um, so that's right. what we know. Um, what we know is that you know white power has been on the rise, especially. Uh, I mean, for always, right? Like, oh yeah, what white supremacy does. Um, but that it's particularly had an opportunity to be overt um, since the election of of Donald Trump to the to the presidency. Um, right, his proximity to white nationalists and folks in the white power movement, white supremacists, um, and so you know, we it's not particularly shocking that institutions. Um, that believe in building beloved community, that sacred spaces like mosques and synagogues um, and, and movement infrastructure is under attack by people who disbelieve and, and you know, everybody having what they need so that there is no harm anymore um, right. in, in beloved community. So, um, you know, what's even more important than the what happened is that the, the work is still continuing, that we're doing that, we're being intentional about our safety, um, that we're loving each other and taking care of each other and that right. we're still building social movements to transform this world into the better place that we've always deserved. It's almost as if, you know, in certain cases, like it, it calls for a reset of self-care of like personal, you know, values and how that relates on on a local you know level like something as 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 tragic as a you know a a thing um you know getting burned down i i think it's more of a self-reflection and we also know that it's that is a symbol but the movement and the work still moves on so it's almost as if it's um what am i trying to say it's more of a you're burning something down, but it, it's not going to stop me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, yeah. So I, I commend you. Um, it's something, you know, this is something that isn't old and it's in, it's in a playbook that's been in, been in their, you know, plans like for forever and um, just keep doing the work, you know? And I think if anything, um, one of the reasons why I, I started this podcast was like I needed to try and figure out what could I do instead of being a social media warrior, just jumping on Twitter or jumping on, you know, Facebook and and, and ranting, you know, and, um, you know, I'm, I consider myself very, very lucky to have ran into you like I don't think it was an accident, yeah. you know, other, <laughs> other than, you know, just, you know, just like you know, sharing, you know, our Southern roots and, you know, like, you know, having the, you know, ah, oh, you went to this college, yeah. I went to A&T, you know, the, the rivalry and, you know, all that. And I was just like, ah, oh, this is awesome. Like I missed this, you know? So how, how, how did you fall into being an yeah, actress? Yeah, I mean, I, um, just like I'm Southern by birth and blessing, um, I also was born into a family that believed in serving our community. And so, um, you know, my mom is a Black Panther Party member. Uh, my dad uh, was, you know, a proponent of the Black arts um, and uh, and believed in Black people having our own communications infrastructure to be able to talk to each other. Um, and so I grew up, you know, with, with them, you know, folks, you know, having meetings in my house and 
being in meetings all day and night, um, you know, following my parents around, going to protests um, with my mom and, uh, you know, also had grandparents that believed in uh, being civically engaged and, and, and serving our community. My grandparents raised their five kids in a community that um, had been a county and a rural community in East Tennessee, uh, up in Hamilton County, and the, the county went bankrupt. It was, it was called James County at the time. It's Hamilton County now. Um, and when James County mm-hmm. went bankrupt, those black and, and the few poor white folks and the few indigenous folks that were still there that had moved uh, to like, or had been forcefully migrated out um, to, you know, North Carolina and other places. Um, you know, they basically were like, we don't need James County to take care of us. Like we can take care of each other. And so they farmed and they, you know, lived off the land and they gave, you know, the, the surplus to their neighbors and they went to church together and they worshiped together and they worked together and they educated their kids together and they had community events together. They played baseball together. Um, and so it's the closest that I knew of what it would look like to self-determine, uh, you know, collectively uh, in a community. Um, and right. I grew up with that inheritance, right? right? Um, and so some people would say that it was impossible for me not to become an activist and an organizer and be involved in building social movements for the for the betterment of all of, all of our people. Um, but in 2004, I, uh, no, 2003, I was a, a senior in high school and, you know, it was getting ready to be a presidential election year. And I went to a predominantly white high school and there were definitely kids with some mm-hmm. wealth there and some really poor kids there and a handful of black kids that, you know, had been put into the school, including myself. Um, I was the only black kid in my gifted class. Um, and mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, I had been going to the polls with my mom and my grandparents for as long as I could remember. My granddad worked the polls, right? He was like the the person that stewarded over the election in our precinct. Um, I grew up knowing that voting wow. was important to my folks. And uh, as I'm like the senior in high school, I'm noticing that like as people are gearing up for the presidential election, the people that were coming to register folks in their senior year were like really only talking to white kids. Um, and they were particularly talking to white kids that, you know, had wealth or were on like the collegiate track. Right. They weren't talking to like the trade school white kids right. and they weren't talking to any of the black kids, including myself. Um, and I'm like, how dare right. they like. I right. This Which election would have was this? been the two thousand the twenty the two thousand and four years, so that would have been Gore, right? Gore Harry. Oh yeah, yeah. Bush um, Bush the second. And Bush so the second and Gore, yeah. I and Gore's from Tennessee. You know what I mean? I was just like, why are you talking to me? Um, oh yeah. And so I called my mom. I was well, so was upset. And so I called my mom and I was like, yeah. you know, I'm not gonna cuss on this podcast. I'm gonna try not to. Um, what is happening like why okay. won't they talk to me and she was like you should call this dude his name is johnny holloway he um at the time was the the chair of the operation push coalition which was like connected to the rainbow push, pu- the rainbow push coalition that jesse jackson is known for um and so i called him and i was like mm. mr holloway like this is what just happened in my school and he was like ashley it's god that you called me and I was like, bro, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, I was like, break that down for me. And he was like, uh, well, I just got off the phone with a guy <laughs> named Ben Cheney. Do you know who he is? And I was like, nope. And he was like, have you ever heard of a dude named James Cheney? And I was like, no, I have not. 
And he was like, have you heard of Cheney Goodman and Shorner? I was like, nope, I have not. He goes, have you ever seen the movie Mississippi Burning? I said, nope, I haven't. And he said, Mm. well, let me break it down for you. And he told me the story about how three civil rights workers, two of them white Jews and one of them a black man from Mississippi, were registering black people to vote in in Mississippi and were murdered for for their efforts uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. And he said that Ben, James's baby brother, um, who was like 12 at the time that James was murdered, uh, was going to do a reenactment of the Freedom Rides to register people to vote all over uh, the, the country, but particularly like the Northeast and the Southeast. Um, and that if I helped organize this, the Chattanooga stop, he would send me on the ride. And I was like, absolutely, I'm trying to do this. Um, so I got my voter registration card right, for my 18th right. birthday. I helped plan the Chattanooga stop for about a year. And then in June of 2004, I flew to New York and met Ben Cheney in Ramsey Clark's office, um, who used to be the attorney general of the United States. And um, and then okay. like became an activist in my own right, um, helping do voter registration and education work all across the country. Help it, and then that led me to doing work to help people learn about the cold civil rights martyrs cases. Because at the time, uh, many of the people that had been involved in the murder of Cheney Goodman and Schwarner had never been criminally prosecuted. Um, So I got involved in making sure that people were holding them accountable to that. And the next year, like January, I think of 2005, Edgar Ray Killen was arrested um, and then ultimately convicted of manslaughter in the murder of Cheney Goodman and Schwerner. Um, And then that, you know, I met a lot of like student nonviolent coordinating committee elders and like a lot of folks that have been in the Congress of Racial Equality and other Black Panthers that I thought were just my mom and dad's friends that were like actually these like really well-known and respected revolutionaries and um, and then met people my age that also were trying to live that life of building a, a beloved community and a better world. And um, and I wanted to do that. And so I, I like learned to respect the legacy of my parents and learned how to do it on my on my own two feet. Um, and so I've been doing this work ever since. Oh, that's that, that's amazing. You know, in particular, hearing what I I like to say, like your origin story, you know, I'm a big superhero (laughs) guy. So it's like, oh, this is Ashley's origin story. Like this is how you come into your, come into your own and having like all of these people that, you know, you've had dinner with, that you've played around with, that you've talked to, but then all of a sudden when that light turns on, and you need to to act on something. You've got an amazing support group that have done it before and have and are showing you how to do it. For sure, I mean, there there is no movement by yourself. Yeah, right. Like we're not alone in this work and don't have to be. Yeah. And most of us don't want to be. That um, if we're really going to make this sort of transformative transformative change that needs to happen in this country and in this world, like it's going to require a lot of us. Um, not every single one of us, um, but like, you know, Harriet Tubman didn't free everybody, but she still broke the back of enslavement of African people through her work. Um, but she also didn't do that by right. herself. Right. And so I think there's so many lessons, um, from our people that like show that when we come together, um, and are in right relationship with each other and are trying to do this work with the best of intentions that we might fool around and make some mystery. Um, you know, the, the crazy thing about, <clears throat> about uh learning about the Highland Center was like literally as soon as soon as you left 
uh you know like right you know i was i am i am still a lyft driver and then when you and your friend you know came came in we talked and all that stuff you know it blew my mind to learn about about the center like i hadn't heard of it you know before and immediately like after i was done working i went home and i just started googling any and everything Mm -hmm. you know i could you know uh about it and i was just simply like amazed but for you know for those who have not you know had the 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 wherewithal to know about the highland center can you talk to us a little bit about it and how and how you became yeah uh, Um, it was my co-director actually that was in the car with us that day um, here in the room with Mm -hmm. me now right right um yeah how you doing hey i'm good i'm good feel free to jump Um, in so yeah and i might toss this one to him actually i mean the highlander center um the, the full name for the highlander center is the highlander research and education center um, but we were founded in 1932. We'll be 87 years young this year. Um, and so some people refer mm-hmm. to us as like one of the oldest uh, grassroots uh, organizations in the, in the region. Um, not many folks have been able to, to stay alive and do this work um, as consistently um, as we've been able to, regardless of the, the many, many, many attacks to try to make it not so um, uh, including the one that just happened in March, on March 29th. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, we were founded by some really incredible folks that believe that everybody's a teacher and everybody's a learner. And that if we could bring people together um, to tell their stories, to share their cultures, to talk about who's creating problems where they live, um, that they might be able to build new knowledge. And if they take that new knowledge and develop strategy and identify tactics to do something differently, that they could change the material conditions of our people and that they could save, they could literally save the world. Um, and so far we've been proven to be right. <laughs> that, 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 that does work. Um, we've added some stuff to <laughs> nice. our, our methodology around popular education. Um, we've added that, like we believe that intergenerational organizing is important, that our elders have a lot to teach and learn and our young people have a lot to teach and learn. And that when we do that together, that we can build incredible, incredible movements um, that, you know, we believe that people should be able to speak their mother tongues as they build these social movements. And so thinking about language justice and multilingual capacity building has been work that we've done. Um, you know, so many others, cultural organizing, right? That any organizing that's not culturally relevant is not good organizing. Um, but very specifically that if you do work at the nexus of art and culture and faith and spirit, that you can change policies and practices uh, we've seen that over and over again, whether it was the Black Liberation Movement or the folk uh, song movement, et cetera. Um, and so we we still make we still make space to help folks become competent in those methodologies so that they can take it back home and use it to transform their realities. Um, we've done work since 1932 in the labor movement. I mean, arguably the AFL-CIO wouldn't exist without Highlander. Um, we did work to you know to support the folks that were building and implementing work uh, that led to the, the wins of the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement of the 50s, 60s and 70s and, and, and ongoing. Um, we've done work around immigrant justice, uh, workers' rights and labor justice. We've done stuff around reproductive justice. There's like not a front line of struggle that we haven't touched, including stuff that's become more recently a part of our vernacular around like climate justice and, and queer liberation and um fighting for trans bodies and, and body autonomy of gender nonconforming people and like lots and lots and lots of different front lines have, have come and done work here at the Highlander Center. Um, but the, the way that we do that work is by continuing to pull social movements to the left 
by doing like lifelong movement accompaniment and support work and by incubating and innovating radical work. Like that's really our work and our mission um, is really specifically to be a catalyst for those social movements to help support the ones that exist and help to birth the ones that are needed. I don't know if there's stuff you add, Alan. Yeah. The only thing I'd add is, you know, there's, there's sometimes people remember that we were originally known as the Highlander folk school. Um, and that the Highlander Folk School was our first name. And then in 1959, when the state, local, and uh, federal authorities worked together to try to oust us from where we were originally, because this is our third home, um, that the Highlander Folk School name was a charter that was revoked by the state of Tennessee and upheld in the Tennessee State Supreme Court. So uh, we've been one organization since 1932, well before the Tennessee's Supreme Court revoked our charter. We staff at the time were already filing uh, paperwork under the Highlander Research and Education Center. So that's one little we try to to name, and then also right. kind of in reference to that, uh, this is our third home. We were in Grundy County, Tennessee, which is in between Chattanooga and Nashville from 1932 till 1961, and then we were in Knoxville, um, and kind of a combined force of Klan activity and also anti-black and anti-poor urban renewal in Knoxville led us to come out to where we are today. And we've been here longer than we've been anywhere else. We've always been a school. So when people talk about the issues that we work on in a company, it's because we're an educational center and we support mass front lines and support a whole bunch of people to help get them connected to one another to build power and thought and analysis. Wow. Yeah. It just seems as if um, you've got a constant barrage of people that are just fighting against, you know, progress. And, you know, the Highland Center has just been, you know, kicking it strong and and just going and going forward. So um, why? You know what? Uh, uh, Lee, right? Ashley and Alan. I'm Alan with a Y. Ashley. And Alan, Alan, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So Alan, why, why don't you t- uh, give us a, a brief bio uh, about yourself and how you got involved sure. so uh, in, in the not, center? Not too differently from Ash. It was around high school, toward the end of high school, um, when for me, it had a lot to do with the high stakes testing that was starting to get rolled out. Um, and it had already been rolled out in public schooling across the country, but really it started to come to my mind that the way that education was being implemented and exacted upon young people was violent on number of levels, you know, even in the kind of college prep courses, this sort of high stakes testing was something that was not allowing for creativity or any kind of exploration of our own personal or collective wishes and desires around what learning should mean to us and how it should be relevant to our lives. Um, and so it was in that, that season of my life when I started thinking, you know, there's mm-hmm. a different way to do educational work, probably. Um, and so when I was in college, I got to spend time on a study abroad program in the northeastern part of Thailand. Um, and that program was actually run by the leaders of the people's movement of that region of that country. Uh, and they were both using alternative educational models or popular education, as we call it here in the States and down in Brazil, where we got that name from. Um, they were using that model to really think through what does it mean to build solidarity between folk who are most directly impacted and folk like those of us who are from the States. Uh, How do we work together to actually develop visions for the future that are designed by the people most impacted and and accompanied by those who want to stand in solidarity with them? So 
Uh, that to me was sort of the beginning of a journey that led me to become a school teacher and then a neighborhood organizer in upstate South Carolina where I was living for a long time. And through that process, I started realizing that uh, the neighborhood and work that I was doing uh, in that neighborhood really required a lot of attention to how do we bring two people together through a different kind of way of learning and education. Um, and so I started thinking to myself, you know, maybe I can create my own school. Maybe I can create my own idea uh, and start something that no one's ever done before. And then when I was starting to say that, people were like, well, there's this place called Highlander Center. It's been around for about <laughs> 75 years. Uh, you, should get yourself, you should get yourself up to the 75th anniversary. <laughs> Uh, and that was back in 2007. So that was my entry, entry point into the world of the Highlander Research and Education Center. And since then, uh, or since 2007, you know, started coming up back for programming, bringing residents and students that I was working with at the time in South Carolina, and then was invited to be on the board. And then Ashley asked if I would serve alongside her in this role, or apply and then serve alongside her in this role. And that's what I've been, that's the short and sweet of it. The irony is that we were both our first, both of our first times to Highlander was at the 75th, but we didn't meet there. Yeah, thousands of people. <laughs> there were so many that. people there that we didn't meet, <laughs> um, but, you know, definitely got to, to know and build with each other and, and, and come to love each other and want to do this work together uh, through serving on the board and through programs and, and now get to leave it together. Yeah. So what what I'm hearing, and I think this is uh, what you guys have been doing all along, is you know taking what's going on on a local level and applying it on a global you know front in regards to social activism, you know, and all that. Um, what is the natural evolution uh, of the community uh, community activism look like, and how is it possible to take this movement? on a more global level. I know it's, it's really easy today, you know, because of the internet, smartphones and all that stuff. So what's, what's the next, you know, front, how do we attack, you know, these, these issues? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a really critical question. I I think that like what's real is everywhere to some degree is local, right? doesn't matter where I am, you know, in Ramallah, if I'm in Johannesburg, if I'm in Cape town, if I'm in a township, if I'm in Newmarket, Tennessee, or uh, Western North Carolina, right? Like somebody is having a local experience, right? So it's just like the bedrock of how you build social movements, right? Is to think about local work. But what's real is that the impact of what's happening locally is probably not dissimilar from what's happening in other local places, right? And the way to build power um, at least at the start, is to put people in relationship with each other to be able to identify that there's like people that are doing the same bad things all over the place, right? So whether we're talking about, you know, right. the, the kidnapping and then uh, forced enslavement of African people, that wasn't just like a, a problem in, you know, whatever small town Mississippi, right? It also was connected to people, like families being destroyed, people being kidnapped in a place in, on the continent, right? If we're talking about fast forward to like the right. 90s and yeah. 2000s, as globalization became a real thing. Um, but even before then, like with colonization, right? Like there, there's so many reasons why uh, to build strong movements, we need relationships with each other across these false, these fake borders that white men have created for us. Um, and so I think in a 21st century context, I mean, I know that you've 
done a lot of research and talked to people about like the relationship even with the Ferguson uprisings and, and our comrades in Gaza um, and in Palestine and even Palestinians that are U.S. based um, and what that meant for our for our ability to be able to know like what to do when you get tear gassed, right? Um, or even think more deeply about like what does it mean yeah. to use boycotting, divestment, um, and and uh, sanctions. Uh, to fight against international human rights violations, right? Like without being connected to global movements and to be real, most of black liberation movement has always had a pan-Africanist or pan-Africanist or internationalist politic. Um, we just won't be as strategic as we could be. Um, and issues more and more mm -hmm. are not just impacting us on the lo local level. They're happening on the statewide level. They're happening on the federal level. And definitely when we think about climate change, it's a, it's a, it's a global issue, right? Um, and so I think it's a natural thing right. to what's the, the sort of corny slogan to to uh, globally think globally and act locally, like um, and the vice versa. Yeah. Like I think it's it's actually the only strategic thing we can do if we really intend to be able to not only survive but to thrive together on this planet where everybody has what they need. Um, and I think that if we did that and everybody had what they needed, right. uh, there would be no harm. There would be no crime. There would be no problems because we would have actually made sure that people have what they need in the first place. Right. Yeah, it definitely uh, seems as if it seems as if all of these uh, issues, you know, there is one common you know, denominator, and that is the oppressor and the oppressed and whatever wherever you are in the world, I mean, you can be, you know, whatever color, you can be whatever religion, there's still someone trying to enforce their will, you know, upon you. I don't know whether that's just human nature or just like some kind of design where it's just like, okay, in this part of the world, these people need to be here and we're going to put our thumb on them or what have you. Uh, but David, do you, do you have a, do you have any, any, any yeah, thoughts on this? Um I think that there's a way to understand at least the last five, 600 years of the colonial project that's been implemented by European and white people. And I think that when we look at what the opposition both does in its current context and current time, and then also ground that in an analysis and assessment of what people have been up to, um, then it sets up easier conversations to have around what is worth resisting and also build alternatives to. Because I think that when you get into conversations around you know, where things start. Um, I think there's been a profound legacy. There are profound legacies from folks who have been in resistance to the, the larger colonial project that Europe set up with allies in other places um, to implement and really create devastation and extraction and isolation of people from the ways of life that they were living. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't put that in a sort of historical uh, romantic sense. I mean, I think what we have, plenty of examples of people pushing right. back against the colonial project uh, and colonial projects is probably a better way to put it. And so what that means is that there's, there's knowledge, mm -hmm. wisdom uh, around modes of resistance and modes of building alternatives that have been going on for as long as that project's been around. And so that enables like different ways of learning from each other across geography and across context and across culture and language, et cetera. And I think some of the most exciting examples of that are relatively recent um, and right now. I mean, we're in the middle of conversations with international, like, you know, Ash was mentioning solidarity and work with Palestinians. Um, I'm about to be dipping back into some conversations with folks in uh, Thailand and Southeast Asia with other centers of popular education from around the world. Um, I think there's just, there's not a, 
there's not a shortage of international and geography to geography conversations and people to people conversations that have been happening. I think sometimes it's a question of whether um, uh-huh. we've gotten the space to actually determine collectively what our future ought to be. Um, and as, as the mounting resistance or the mounting levels of structural oppression and, and like implementation through policy of the white right and other uh, allies of the white right um, have, you know, we, we're just in the middle of that kind of that bigger conversation around how that's going because the white right isn't isolated to the United States. Uh, I think that's something to understand in neo-fascist movements have been right. going, uh, for decades and decades and decades. So uh, those are the only things I would add to that. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And it also seems, I don't want to uh, exclude, uh, you know, our other communities, you know, in, in the U S you know, and abroad. I mean, just, you know, just a simple fact that, you know, you have poor whites, you know, that are under the illusion that, you know, their jobs, or their livelihoods is being, you know, threatened, you know, by black and brown people. It's a classic, you know, divide and conquer. And, you know, I'm, I've personally, you know, have seen this, you know, for quite some time. And, and I came to the realization, you know, that, you know, we, I like, for me personally, like, stop being upset at that person, try to find, you know, common ground. You know, and that's been like my big push, you know, for me personally, whenever I come across, you know, someone who makes a statement about, oh, we need to build a wall, you know, and I'm like, well, have you thought about what's happening on on a world level? You know, like there are certain, you know, cities and communities that are being like tore down because of U.S. intervention, whether it's oil or whether it's, you know, the, you know, drug you know, drug crisis, you know, as far as like that. And these people are having to leave and go somewhere else. And so where they're coming, they're coming here because they're being run out. And a little more than half, there's at least an aha moment that's like, I never thought of that. But but then that brings me, you know, to think, oh, well, they didn't, no one is telling you because you either don't have the time to, to look because you're too busy working, trying to feed your family and clothe them or what have you. And all those things, you know, in between. So, you know, I I think it's awesome that, you know, there are two of you because, you know, there should be like a whole army (laughs) just because, just because I know that (laughs) it is a monumental task uh, to undertake. But, you know, back in the U.S., you know, you know, just some thoughts here. You know, you had a, you've got Malcolm X wanting, you know, to bring the U.S. on, on charges of, of segregation, you know, to the United Nations after after he made his hajj to Mecca. Uh, Dr. King, his next goal was doing a poor people's, you know, movement, and then he was assassinated. Um, and of course, the Vietnam War, he, he started to, you know, speak against. So even then, these were precursors to taking the movement on a global, you know, level, which, which should be, I think, a natural evolution, you know, as well. Um, can you guys expand on that? You know, what yeah, what are you guys like, doing next? I think it's a lot, right? There's a yeah, whole lot yeah. to be concerned about. Um, and I think that, you know, what's real is that a lot of the, the work that Brother Malcolm and Dr. King um, started is, is, is work that didn't just evaporate with their assassinations, right? Um, that many, many, many folks that are U.S. born um, have been working with other comrades in the international human rights community, uh, to hold the UN 
to a standard, right? Like you've probably heard about the UN's decade on the on people of African descent um, uh, that are like talking about uh, what to what what the UN should be doing in terms of making certain that black people across the diaspora are uh, are are given um, their human rights and their human rights are protected. Um, and then, you know, in, in particular, the, the Poor People's Campaign also mm-hmm. has been relaunched and um, some of our, our movement kin, like uh, Dr. William Barber and, and, and Ross Pellis and so many other folks have been doing work uh, to continue to talk about, uh, you know, militarism, white supremacy, capitalism, and, and then adding like, you know, uh, reproductive justice and, and, and gender justice and, and queer liberation and climate justice to the narrative around the, the, the many evils that our people are facing. Um, so I think that work still continues and is, is alive and well. And then I think that in terms of expansion, I think, you know, and, and a lot of the, the solidarity work that we've been able to be a part of and, the, and, and continue to, to try to, uh, to, to innovate and support um, isn't a demand that like we stop talking about things domestically and we only talk about what's happening in Thailand or only talk about what's happening in South Africa or only talk about what's happening in Palestine or any other number of places. The request is that we be intentional about being folks with blue passports that have a particular level of privilege. Um, And for those of us that don't have blue passports, um, but still like live and get to to live in some of the privilege that comes from being in the U S because, you know, whether you've got a passport or not, you're paying taxes, right? Um, that, that it's on us to actually talk about what domestically we need to be doing as folks in the U.S. to make sure that these sort of human rights violations and atrocities aren't happening in other places in our name, right? So it's not necessarily that we in the U.S. need to decide what a free Palestine looks like. What we do need to decide is that, like, the U.S. should not be giving military aid to Israel to to basically enact genocide and ethnic cleansing of a people in a place, right? Um, and oh, what becomes possible, right? right? If we weren't giving right. literally billions of dollars to Israel um, to kill, to uproot, um, you know, to destroy the lives and families of Palestinian people in Palestine and everywhere else for that matter, um, then we would have money to invest in like infrastructure in black communities and brown communities and, to make sure that everybody's got health care, right? Like basic exactly. shit that everybody should have, right? Um, and so I think like, you know, our job exactly. is to do the work as people that are really in the belly of the beast when we're talking about imperialism and colonization, um, who are experts on genocide and ethnic cleansing and enslavement, um, to be really intentional about doing what we can stateside um, to say, like, not in our name. Absolutely not in our name. Um, you know, I think the, one of the ways most concretely that I'm seeing this work right. continue to expand is through the Vision for Black Lives policy platform that the Movement for Black Lives produced. I'm not talking about it just because I helped write it. Um, I really do think it is an expansion of this work um, where it's making policy, progressive policy demands uh, for, for, for demands that we don't have to tear down if we win them later. Um, and I think that that work is, is just one example of how we're seeing that work expand. Right, right. And, you know, for me, you know, seeing, you know, seeing, seeing that uh, video on YouTube with a Palestinian activist, a Jewish uh, activist, and, you know, just the many different types of people talking about that one common thing of, you know, the, the ruthless killing of 
another human being simply because you know of what they practice you know and this goes back to like world what world war one or world war two or, or what have you um in regards to the land you know there and anytime you talk uh anytime you critique uh, the government of israel then you know you're called anti-semitic you know we're seeing this you know happen in the halls of congress and it's getting you know pretty much ridiculous because anybody who actually can take the time to you know read what's going on or look at the news and they're able to read between the lines they can see that that that's a total fabrication of of what an actual yeah, for person sure and it's a it's saying. a red herring right mad. it's a it's a way yeah. to distract from the actual conversation yeah. um about like what is happening in palestine um you know i think that What's real is that just like black liberation um, gives white people an opportunity to decolonize their race, um, Palestinian liberation gives Jewish communities an opportunity to decolonize their faith because Zionism um, is, is, I think, an attack on the Jewish faith. Right. Um, And so I, you know, I feel like very, very confident that um, anti-Semitism is real as someone um, who may have been recently attacked by neo-Nazis. Um, I have no question about the reality of anti-Semitism. It is no small mm-hmm. thing. And it is literally even now putting the lives of my Jewish, oh. like re- like literally bio relatives and comrades and movement kin in jeopardy. Um, whether it's the like attack on Jewish synagogues mm-hmm. or whatever, like we know, we know that it's still something to fight and it's still something to be very aware of and that it's definitely a priority. And we also don't have a question that we can fight um, anti-Semitism and make a demand for Palestinian liberation, that those things are not antithetical to each other. One of I've recently become not necessarily concerned, but, you know, looking towards, you know, the prison industrial complex that, you know, we can, you know, we can say really kicked into high gear like during what during the 90s, the mid 90s you know, on, right? What else is happening with the prison industrial complex? Uh, during uh, President Obama's, uh, his closing last month, he had uh, put out an executive order planning the the closing of certain prisons that were run privately, but then they were they were reopened or something else happened when President Trump came into office. What what else do we know about the prison industrial complex? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a couple of things. One is uh, that today. I think, especially when we're talking about our buddy Barack Obama, um, that if we're talking about the prison industrial complex, that includes detention centers. Um, and President Obama deported more, you know, mm. uh, undocumented people and and had them in those detention centers than any president before him. Um, so as much as he might be seen as a reformist, yep, um, yep. you know, if, if it doesn't free all of us, it doesn't free any of us. Um, and then I think, you know, in terms of what contemporarily to know is that, you know, you know, I'm, I come from a people that believe like you can't you can't step on my foot and tell me it's good for me if it really, really hurts. Right. And I think that what's being told to us is prison justice reform. <laughs> right. Um, in many cases is not right. Like I'll give you a, like a, a super local example, right? Like many of our cities, um, after the uprisings in Ferguson, Baltimore, Charlotte, many other places, uh, 
the course correction from the state and from law enforcement was like, okay, we'll put body cams on the police officers, right? Body cameras. And folks were like, yeah, but that that's just going to record me. That's not going to record the police officer. And they still have all the decision-making power to decide if those, if those videos come out to the public, if they're, you know, who has community control of the police, nobody. So like, it just wasn't a real solution. It was a false, uh, it was a falsity, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a real solution. And so like, if, if we're thinking about nationally prison justice reform, then shutting down prison sounds really great. I'm an abolitionist. I don't want there to be prisons and jails. I don't want our people in cages, right? Like I absolutely believe in the abolition of, of prisons and jails and want them to be closed. And that sounds right. But if you dig a little bit under the surface, what you see is that it's actually just becoming less profitable uh, for rich white men and for the state uh, to continue to invest in prisons and jails. That's actually what's happening. Interesting. How so? Well, so they're not. They're, what, what it's costing more to keep us in prison than it's than it's it's profiting them. Okay. Right. So and the free labor isn't making as much as they as thought. they want, right? Um, there's too many of us. Right? <laughs> um, we're surplus, which which is why it's not like that's why I was sort of like hesitant about like it skyrocketing in the '90s because it is true that like you know the the war on drugs and many other things led to the the increased criminalization of blackness and and poverty and and that led to many people being incarcerated but what's real is that like the enslavement of african people um was totally connected like the first cops existed to protect white people's property and at the time we were black people were white people's property right so the prison industrial complex is much much older than that and um and and in fact the even the 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 constitutional uh you know, agreement that black people would now not be enslaved, right? Had a caveat ex- that says that it, like we would not be enslaved except if we had been convicted of a crime, right? Right. Um, so it's why they can get free labor or cheap labor out of incarcerated people. Right. Um, so I say all that to say that because it's not profitable anymore um, in the ways that it has been in the past, um, many of the the white right and the state and uh, you know folks that are actually benefiting off the prison industrial complex are doing what I call the new new Jim Crow right the new Jim Crow would have been the mass incarceration stuff the new new Jim Crow is that they're going to let you out of prison and jail but they're going to surveil you for ten years they're going to put you on an ankle monitor that you have to pay for they're going to turn your house into your cage and so to me that's not actually transforming mm. a, a system that is is a boot on the neck of our people. It's actually just uh, evolving it, evolving it in a way that makes you pay for it, um, that that turns your your house into your cage and makes you responsible uh, for, for uh, you know, what jailers and prisons would have done uh, before they became archaic and not profitable. So I think that like, I think that a lot of what's happening in a contemporary sense around the prison industrial complex is that it's morphing, it's evolving um, to try to continue to sustain itself. And, and I think that the people that benefit off of it are trying to consolidate their wealth and power by, by controlling what that evolution looks like, um, whether it's in private prisons or public prisons and jails or detention right, centers. And right. I think that we really have to keep our eyes on the prize about what actually is a transformative demand and not allowing uh, you know, not conceding to wins that are actually going to hurt other communities. Gotcha. Well, it definitely seems, you know, by design. Well, well one thing I've I've learned uh, 
in 2016 is that it doesn't matter what color you are. The, the institution of the presidency is what's going to, you know, outlast, you know, a person. So we've seen that with Barack Obama, you know, I, I voted for him twice, but then all of a sudden during his, you know, second term, that's when I started to see, oh man, maybe it's not, well, I'll say 50, 60% him, no, 40% him, 60% of what the institution of the presidency, you know, will dictate, you know, that, that you will do. And when my eyes, you know, started to open in regards to the prison industrial complex, you know, what, what that administration did and what they didn't do to advance, you know, the, the black community or just in general, our society, you know, and then when, you know, when those two terms were up, I think we fell into this deep apathy, you know, like, oh, well, we did it. Let's go back to sleep. And then all of a sudden we're wanting to blame a president, you know, that in my opinion, you know, that tactic has already been there. That mindset has already been there in regards to a racist, you know, white man that is sitting on top, you know, in, in the White House, you know, like my favorite quote when, you know, Donald Trump was uh, running for office for the black community, it was like, well, what else do you have to lose? You know, I'm like, you know what, you got a good point because every other president has been, has, you know, tried to suppress, you know, the black community. Why are you any different? <laughs> right. So, so what am I saying here? So, you know, now that, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to impeach President Trump, which I don't personally think is going to happen. And it's actually a farce. And we're not actually looking at the root cause of, you know, how he got into office. So, you know, the liberal minded folks are, are fractured. Um, and with direct opposition to the extreme, you know, right. You wrote an article in 2017 titled, you know, how we can organize the South to save the country uh, in the Huffington Post. How how can we deal with the white nationalist and the Nazi in the in in the neighborhood? And uh, and how can we bring in conservatives like true conservatives, you know, to the cause? Because, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking that it can't just be you know, us crazy liberals who want to give everything away and all that stuff. And the conservatives who was like, ah, we don't want to spend any more money. How can we bridge this gap together? And please, both both of you guys. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. To me, um, the, the more important thing to analyze is who is the we, right? Um, I think that what's real is that the presidency is only what we mm. continue to allow it to be. I think the only people that would tell us that the way that we're currently governing this country has to be this way are people that benefit off of that, right? Which isn't the vast majority of us. Um, I think only white supremacy and capitalism, right. um, heteronormativity and other things that are used to, uh, to, to divide us based on our identities um, and to oppress us, um, to keep money out of our pockets and to keep our communities divided would tell us that the way things are have to be the way that things always are. Um, and so I, I challenge the idea that the way that we are currently governing this country has to be the way that it is. Secondly, I think if the we is people who believe that everybody deserves to have what they need. So like everybody deserves health care. 
everybody deserves to make a, a, a basic income to be able to cover like housing and, 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 and bills and incidentals, all that stuff. Right. Um, I think there's more of us that agree about those things than disagree. And then it's just a matter of not allowing the political machination of this, of this country to like crush our ability to do those things. Um, I think feels really important. I don't think that necessarily uh, the, the work is about uh, not talking to people who are actually right in our vicinity. Right. Like, um, for example, um, there's a significant number of black men who voted for Donald Trump, right? And although Trump obviously lost the popular vote, if those black men turn around again next election cycle or this election cycle next year and then vote for Trump again, like it could really damage our ability to make sure that Trump doesn't get a second term. And that's me telling you that as Ashley, not as me talking for my organization, right? Like I think that like, it is just really, really important to talk to our actual family mm-hmm. and friends and neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I trust is that white people who, uh, you know, black, this is what I would say. Black women have consistently gotten it right. right? Like we go, we vote, we vote, we vote for a candidate that usually has, uh, that is like the lesser <laughs> of evils um, because we haven't had always candidates that are actually are totally in alignment with our values um, but we've definitely done our work to try to control the landscape in which we're fighting and surviving. What we need is for fo- for other folks who are not consistently getting it right as right as Black women to do their part. We need Black men to talk to Black men about why it's important to trust Black women, right? Um, to follow their leadership, to serve with them, to like you know go out and like not no, listen to this garbage that we're being fed about, like how immigrants are taking, like brown immigrants are taking black men's jobs. That's not real, right? And we need black men to actually do that work. We need white people to talk to white people, right? We need white people to talk to white people about the lies that they've been fed for as long as there's been a white people around how people of color that are living um, in in the same geographical vicinity are not trying to take shit away from them and are trying to build community with them. Um, you know, we need, we need to be intentional about that and we need to not concede space, right? We as the progressive, uh, liberal or left, um, we need to not be conceding spaces around like communities of faith and rural people, right? Um, because what I know is that when I've sat down with folks that I disagree with, um, they're going to say some stuff that I think is really messed up. Not, I think that I know is really messed up. I might say some stuff that's pretty messed up too. But if we drink to the bottom of the mason jar, we're probably going to realize that we have way more in common right. than we have difference. Um, and I think that if we if we do that pop ed style through cultural organizing, we can really transform the conditions that our people are living in. Um, I think, you know that that if you are if you have the power and privilege to do things that are harmful to my community, my job isn't to my job is to to be as good as I can, and hopefully that change your heart and mind. But, it, but like to, to expect that people who are currently being oppressed by the conservative right, right, the conservative period, but the conservative right very specifically, the, the white right um, and all of its multiple formations, conservative formations, to expect that those people are supposed to both be able to like do the work that it takes to survive their oppression and be patient, loving teachers uh, to, to explain to them why their boot on the neck is really harmful. It would be like if right now on this podcast, Alan had his, his hands around my throat and was choking me out while I was trying to talk to you. And then for you to turn around to me and be like, yo, Ashley, you should really figure out how to convince Alan to not choke you out while you're on this podcast. 
You know what I mean? It's yeah. a little egregious. Yeah. However, I do think that there are people with more power and privilege that should be doing that work. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's stuff you would add on. Yeah. I mean, I think the the question comes up for me a lot, <laughs> um, both in terms of like who my people are and then also some of the windows of opportunity that I see in this moment to really have a conversation with folks, both who are maybe, you know, conservative in their political orientation, uh, whatever that means. Sometimes I don't totally know what that means. But the, the other piece I would say is um, maybe they're not as engaged um, in the work. Right. But I think what's what I what, where I find hope is that there's some real, really powerful conversations uh, going on and in, in like in my own life where folks in my family, folks in community that I'm in community with, that I grew up with, went to church with. Just to be clear, Alan's a white dude. I'm a white dude from a rural part of town, North, part, of, part of North Carolina. So like, what I what I what I see happening are bigger explorations, yes, and curiosities <laughs> about reconstruction. Yep, um, I've seen it before this particular moment. I saw it five six years ago. I used to teach it in the schools that I taught in, and when that mm. kind of conversation happened, not just so that everybody gets around textbooks and studies the past, but because what that window of time in this you know concept known as the United States or whatever this project on this continent. What that opened up was a real conversation about rearranging the order that governs our society, governs our economics, governs who's in control, governs who has power, and governs uh, more an expansion of lowercase d democracy, right? For folks who uh, had been boxed out from it, who were forcibly removed, forcibly enslaved, et cetera. So when we look at, when we're able to get real clear about that, what we have inherited is not the thing that necessarily uh, was the was the um, what we have inherited is not the only option that we had in the past. That's true. Then what we get into with people is like there was another route that we could have taken, and we could still take it. There are multiple routes we can mm-hmm. take that we could have taken, and that we can still take. And that is a powerful opportunity to bring into consciousness uh, for folk who are more conservative, not as engaged, whatever that might mean. Um, bring into consciousness that they too can be liberated from the system that they have inherited and that they are participating in the oppression of other people around. Um, so that gives, that gives me a lot of excitement. For sure. I mean, just, just the, the idea or the realization that maybe some people may have as far as like the institution of racism and how it affects, you know, everybody here in this country, you know, and abroad. And the reason why I brought this question up is because I uh, I recently discovered a sure conservative, uh, young conservative woman by the name of <laughs> Candace Owens. She was on the Joe Rogan show, uh, yeah, a couple of months ago, and then and then I and then as I'm, you know, fumbling through the YouTube's, you know, she showed up again on a Russell Brand uh, podcast, and so I sat there and I watched her, and I was like, well, her realization. Like there is a key moment like in her life, you know, she talks about it like most of her male family members have been in jail. Uh, She states that, you know, the civil rights, you know, bill signed by, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, he commonly referred to it as the nigger bill, which he has. Mm -hmm. And, And so but she took another route, you know, so I'm sitting there listening to her. I'm like, well, she's not necessarily she's not wrong i may disagree with her path that she chose but like that that was a fork in the road for her and yet you know and she went 
this other way. So that's what brought me to this whole realization. I was like, well, there are some common things that that kind of rings true, not some of the rhetoric that, you know, you know, once I've gone into the Twitters and all that stuff, I'm like, well, she's saying some pretty wild out, you know, stuff. But what like I think there can be some things that everyone can agree on, you know, to try and find like a common goal to, you know, get something across. So that's 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 why I, I brought that up. You yeah, know, I mean, I, I think yeah. the work that I'm trying to do in my life and the the commitment that the Highlander Center has made to building beloved community is that we do no harm. Right. And I think that it is not true that even if there are some minimal topical things that Candace and I might agree on, um, that she is doing no harm. The things that she's saying are very dangerous. Um, some of the things that she's saying are factually incorrect. Like to say there is no racism is just not real. Okay. Um, you know, to say that there's no racism because she's not a slave when there are literally people that are like, in right. in cages, uh, being forced to work for no money. Um, that's just not real. And so I want to do work that, that shows that we deeply, deeply love people, very specifically as a Black woman. I want to be doing work that shows that I am unapologetically in love with Black people and believe that they deserve everything that they want. And that, um, you know, and I feel that way for like, poor country ass people and white people and Latinx people and queer people and trans people, like all of us who live through some level of marginalization and oppression. I want, I want it to be said that when I die and if the Highlander Center ever does inevitably finish its work um, and close, that we did everything we could to build beloved community and that we were committed to it and we did it, right? I think that what I would say about like working to find unity with Candace is that I want to work with other people that want to build that beloved right. community and want to do it unapologetically um, through love and through fact. Um, and I would say that the way that Candace shows up and the things that she says makes me feel like that's not what she wants to do. Um, and so, you know, I don't think, I think words have power. I was an English major when I went to East Tennessee state okay. and I believe that words have power. I went to the East Tennessee State. I believe the Buccaneers are fantastic. Oh, was that um, a shout out to East Tennessee and, State? You know, AT is dope. You know, I love me some AT. That's actually my <laughs> you homecoming. But uh, you know, I am a Buccaneer, and if I was going to get into the HBCU fight, I would be a Tennessee State University <laughs> fan. Um, There's still hope. Uh, you know. <laughs> We'll talk about that over whiskey, LJ. But um, but yeah, you know, it's like, I think that like words have power. And I also come from a Black liberation theology family. And we believe that like you speak life or you speak death with the power of your tongue, right? And that if, if we are about speaking life to Black people and to folks that have been oppressed or to all people, um, that I believe in building with the people that want to speak life. Uh, to our folks and that want to speak death to the things that hurt our folks. Um, like I do want white supremacy to never exist again. I do want capitalism to not exist anymore. I do want prisons and, and jails and detention centers to never exist. I want my kids to think about that and be like, wow, y'all were so backward. I can't believe that y'all live like that because your life is so good now. And so like, you know, I think that like, it's, it's not, it's not benign when Candace says those things. And I think 
Um, it's not even just about her, like, you know, as a black woman, love and support and hope that she is well. But I also think that like to to act like there's some benign um nature of of catering to conservatives versus the vast super like the real majority of our people who actually are in alignment about the kind of vision that we have for the world, right? The vast majority of people in this country said that we did not want a world where Trump was the the superpower, right? That's actually what happened. The vast majority of Georgians, for example, also said they believed in the vision of Stacey Abrams, right? Like this stuff isn't because we're not, we're not winning. In fact, the attacks are happening because we are. So instead of catering to a center that disagrees with that, why wouldn't we just empower and continue to build the infrastructure of the folks that already have alignment? And I think that's the, that to me, that's the focus of the work right now. Gotcha. Lead by example. Lead by example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And don't let people that aren't leading by example be called your leader. You know, Candace Owens does not speak for me in my community. Well, that's awesome that, uh, you guys are doing the work. Uh, in closing, um, I'd like to thank you, like really from the bottom of my heart. I'm just tickled to death that uh, this actually happened. And how, how can we guys uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, so many ways. You can go to our website. Um, it's highlandercenter.org. Um, you can go to like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where the Highlander Center there. Um, and then if you want me and Alan, we're on all the social media things too. Alan's particularly a fan of LinkedIn these days. <laughs> Um, he's not a millennial, so he thinks that's the like live yeah, social get, media real good platform. Real good uh, but you know, uh, you can find me on Facebook at Ashley Woodard Ash Ashley Woodard Henderson. Um, you can find him at uh, Alan Maxfield still on on uh, Facebook, and then um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter if you're if you're savvy. We can give you all our social media handles in an email, so you've got them. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm I've I've almost checked out of the matrix too. What's that? Oh, great, great, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, uh guys, thanks a lot for for coming on. I can't wait to uh put this uh put this up. It should come up in a couple of weeks. I've got like six other episodes to to rummage through and clean up and Can we subscribe to the podcast already or no? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So here's a we're it's the base. Uh, it, the podcast is based on this app called Anchor, and then they shoot it out everywhere. So it's on uh, iTunes now. Okay, so, what's the name on iTunes? Uh, LJ presents. It is LJ presents. Okay, I thought so. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I found it. Got you. All right, awesome. we're subscribed. Sweet. Awesome. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Take Take care. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of LJ Presents. As always, you can find me on my website at ljeffreymore.com, Twitter at ljeffreymore, and on Instagram at ljeffrey.more. Make sure to check back next week for another great guest. See you then.